With the 25th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast. I'm Fran Duffy. Driving solo this week, Chris McPherson out on vacation like he teased last week. So just me riding solo here, but we do have a litany of guests here for this week's show. We've got draft buzz at the very top with Tony Pauline. We'll get into some of the latest rumors, including some things that will impact the top of this draft next week. And then we've got pick six where Ben Fennell and I, our good friend Ben Fennell, are going to break down six players that have really grown on us throughout the course of the process. Then Lance Zerline, one of my favorites, one of the best in the business from NFL Network and NFL.com is going to join, talk about more about what the guys in front of the Eagles are going to do. So picks 20 through 24, what are those five teams going to do leading up to the Eagles selection next Thursday night? And then we're going to wrap it up with Draft Mailbag. But like I said, we're going to start this thing off with Tony Pauline. It's time for Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, so here it is. Just like every single week, we start here on Draft Buzz with Tony Pauline from DraftAnalyst.com. And, Tony, uh, let's, let's get things going here. I mean, we'll, we'll start at the top. You made national news. Now, this, we're going back a couple of months to the Combine. You made national news when you tweeted out uh, a report that, Kyler Murray, or that Cliff Kingsbury was telling people at the Combine that Kyler Murray from, Texas, or from Oklahoma was going to be the first pick, done deal, going to happen. Now, since that time, it's been a, you know that's been the popular choice for the Arizona Cardinals at the top of most mock drafts. But in the last week, it's been very interesting because we've seen a number of analysts and reputable names come out and say, "Oh, not you know, not so fast." You know, Daniel Jeremiah he tweeted on Monday that the confidence meter in Kyler Murray being the top pick has dropped from ninety percent to sixty percent over the last couple of weeks. Peter King from NBC Sports made the case on Monday in his weekly column that uh, Arizona you know could go a different way and gave all the different reasons why they. Could could potentially draft a different position than quarterback. On the other hand, Jason Lockenfour from CBS reported that Arizona is all in on Murray. So a lot going on, a lot of people talking about this top pick. Obviously, uh, that's the way everybody wants that to be going into this event next week. But has anything changed going on behind the scenes? Uh, what, what are you hearing about what's happening there in Arizona? Yeah, well, let's first start from the top. You know, I did put out the tweet that uh, Cliff Kingsbury had told people at the Combine it was a done deal that Kyler Murray is going to be the first pick of the draft uh, selected by the Arizona Cardinals. But there was a story that was linked to that tweet. And in the story, I said it remains whether, to be seen, whether or not Cliff Kingsbury has the final say on who the Cardinals are going to select. Obviously, he has a say, but does he have a final say? And I, I posted that, uh, I put that, uh, linked that story to that tweet uh, purposely because I knew what was going to happen and we're seeing what's happening. And what I mean, what I was told earlier this week is Bill Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, is basically resisting this, uh, this choice or the, the, uh, the, the decision or what seems to be the decision for the Arizona Cardinals hmm. to select Kyler Murray with the first pick of the draft. I'm told that Bidwell was on board last year when the Cardinals moved up to select Josh Rosen. He liked that uh, move. Uh, he was in favor of that move. And now here it is a year later. He's already paid out $10.8 million in a signing bonus to Josh Rosen. If they trade him, it's basically going to be pennies for the dollar uh, on what they've already paid Rosen. And then they're going to draft uh, Kyler Murray, and they're probably going to have to pay him a signing bonus in the range of 23 to $24 million. So Bidwell is wondering, well, why are we going to pay out you know, close to $35 million in signing bonuses? Uh, for two quarterbacks, and with Kyler Murray, we're going to be starting from scratch. It's understandable 
from a financial business point of view because Bidwell is the boss there as well as a football point of view. Again, you know, we all know how Cliff Kingsbury feels about Kyler Murray. So it should come as no surprise what, what Kingsbury said when I posted the tweet because we all know he wants him. But again, the story said remains whether, the, whether or not to be seen, Kingsbury's going to have the final say. And everything that I've heard earlier this week from multiple sources is Bidwell is resisting this move. Well, and I think this goes back now to what Steve Keim, the general manager, said this week uh, at his pre-draft press conference where, look, they, we haven't made a choice yet, and he could be telling the truth. This all being said, we know how Kingsbury feels. You're, you know, what, you're reporting now what, how Bidwell feels. What do you think is going to happen here? How, how is this going to play out? Yeah, remember, remember, Keim at the Combine really set the, the yeah. wheels in motion when he said Josh Rosen is our quarterback for now. Yep. You know, and, and that was before I, I put out my story in my tweet. What do I think is going to happen? I think that the Arizona Cardinals are going to look to trade the pick and get a King's ransom for it, which I don't think they're going to do. I think they'll do an exhaustive review of all their other options, and I think they're going to go to Bill Bidwell, and they're going to say, hey, listen, we feel the best option right now is to take Kyler Murray with the first pick of the draft. If Bidwell signs off on it, because that's what's going to have to happen. I mean, look at the numbers I just said, $10.8 million a signing bonus that's already been paid out to Josh Rosen. That's why everyone thinks you know Rosen is such a steal for any team that wants to uh, trade for him. I believe his, his total contract is just under $18 million, and almost $11 million of that has already been paid out to him by someone else. Bidwell's going to have to sign off on this move, and I'm, from what I'm hearing right now, he's putting up a lot of resistance. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Obviously, we're just about a week away uh, from that decision. Now, I want to ask you a couple more questions here about quarterbacks. And for the Eagles fans out there, we, the Eagles aren't going to take a quarterback. Yes, that's true. But when you look at this draft and how this can go at the top, this actually you know, obviously has a lot to do with who can fall to the Eagles. We want as many quarterbacks to go in the top 24 picks as possible. So let me ask you this. We've got one question here from a fan, at TDog10573. Who are the Giants looking at with pick six? Is Dwayne Haskins still in the fold there? And this is something that you've talked about on the show a couple, over the last few weeks. Anything new there to report? Is Dwayne Haskins is still an option there, or do you think that they could wait uh, until the, that later pick in the teens for the, the move at quarterback? Well, I think he's the lead option there. Okay. I think the only thing is, is if a top pass rusher falls to them or a pass rusher that they really love is staring them in the face, they may go pass rusher first and then look at a quarterback at 17, possibly Daniel Jones, another player they like. Listen, Dwayne Haskins, as I've said forever, for the longest time, and people now are following along, uh, is the best option for the Giants. It gives them a lot of flexibility in short term and long term. He doesn't have to come in and start right away. He helps them on the field and in a public relations point of view because they can have Eli Manning play next year, uh, finish out his career as a Giant, and either retire or basically if they just don't sign him to another contract, he'll probably retire. They can have Haskins you know, sit on the bench and learn and play sporadically the way Patrick Mahomes did in Kansas City. So I, I think it checks off a lot of boxes for the New York Giants. Now, granted, they're not just going to do it be because of that reason. They're going to want to get the best player in there because the Giants have a lot of holes. So I think right now it, 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 that Haskins is definitely – you know, one of the top options. The only other way they may, the only other direction they may go is if they really fall in love with one of the top pass rushers. If they fall to uh, the Giants at six, so the Giants obviously one of those teams that are really heavily invested in all these quarterbacks, right? I mean, you look at Cincinnati, uh, you look at a couple of these other teams, Washington. They're doing a lot of work on these quarterbacks in this class now. 
it's going to be interesting to me. You look at Denver, and Denver has done a lot of work on all these quarterbacks as well. Um, one other team that now gets kind of thrown into the mix here, Green Bay. With uh, they, they brought in Drew Locke from Missouri this week, and that, that kind of made some headlines. And I wanted to ask you what you thought. What are you reading into the, the Green Bay Packers bringing in Drew Locke for an official visit? Nothing except they're doing all you know. They're doing all their homework. Listen, the Packers did a great job in free agency with their signings on defense to set them up for the draft to give them a bunch of options. So obviously, you know, if Drew Locke is there at thirteen, they they want to bring him in to, to see if he's worth having in the conversation with that selection. I know that the Packers have done a ton of work on the offensive tackles because they need some offensive linemen. It just makes sense. It's just due diligence. And, again, it's, it's part of the fact that they've got two first-round picks. They really answered most of their defensive needs in free agency. So they've got a lot of options. So why not explore, hey, listen, if Chulak is, uh, is staring us in the face of 12, you know, is this a guy that we bring in to groom as the heir apparent to uh, Aaron Rodgers? I would not read anything more than the fact that this is a team doing its due diligence. Is there a chance they can select Chulak? Uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I don't think that this is a precursor to, yeah, they're going to jump all over Drew Locke if he's there at 12. Quick follow-up to this is, you know, you obviously have reported the, the interest there uh, between the Denver Broncos and Drew Locke, the Broncos picking at 10 overall. Uh, Jason Locke and four from CBS actually just put out earlier today, this is Wednesday morning we're doing this, uh, earlier today that Drew Locke could potentially fall and maybe the fourth quarterback out. Now, all these, everybody is kind of pointing out the, the different pecking orders around the league at this quarterback position. But I thought it was interesting timing with the Drew Locke report with him in Green Bay. Green Bay, like you mentioned, they've got two first round picks. That second one is at 30. Do you think it's possible that they could be saying, all right, let's just do our work here on Drew Locke? And if he's there for us at the end of round one, maybe we pull the trigger after taking an offensive lineman early? I don't think Drew Locke is going to be there at 30. Okay. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the Dwayne Haskins. People are saying Dwayne yeah. Haskins. Uh, also saying Dwayne Haskins is going to be the fourth quarterback off the board. I don't. I, I don't think that's going to happen. So yeah, I, I mean, basically, it's it, it's shooting it. You know, shooting at ducks in the air when you've never really shot a gun before and hoping that you hit. I think that's what's going on now. A lot of people throwing stuff out there. Uh, people would accuse me of doing that, although I, I try and do my <laughs> best to uh, be on target. Um, but, you know, I don't think – I'm not a big fan of Drew Locke. I think Drew Locke, I think he's really the poster child for the boomer bust type of quarterback in this year's draft. Uh, I could understand why people would rate him as the fourth quarterback, but I don't see that happening, and I don't see him falling out of the top uh, 20 selections. So from one extreme with Drew Locke and him falling to a, a positive report from the Missouri quarterback, we're going to go to an article uh, written by Albert Breer from the MMQB. This was over the weekend going into Monday morning uh, where Albert Breer named three players that have seen their stocks rise a little bit since coaches have become more involved in the pre-draft process. And he talked about Drew Locke from Missouri, the quarterback, Chris Lindstrom, the offensive lineman from Boston College, and then Michigan linebacker Devin Bush. So my question now to you is two-pronged. Is this something that you've heard as well with any of these guys? And then also, is there anybody else that kind of fits this bill? Is it a player that maybe has seen their stock rise a little bit or even just get a little bit more buzz now that the coaches have been fully integrated into the pre-draft process? Yeah, and sometimes coaches being integrated in the process is not necessarily a good thing because what happens is is basically they dismiss the scouts who have been out there for years watching these guys practice, interviewing these guys, you know, going to games and watching these guys play for a number of years, and then the coaches who watch game film for a couple of months and maybe saw these guys practice at the Senior Bowl and interviewed them at the Combine, you know, their opinions somehow, you know, 
take precedence over the scout. Uh, over the scout. So it's, you have to find a good balance there. So sometimes it's not necessarily a good thing when the coaches get involved and they have too much input. To answer your question, I've absolutely heard it about Drew Locke. Someone told me earlier this week they think he could go top five which means that a team would have to trade up into the top five, potentially with the Jets selection, who's looking to move down, to select Drew Locke. So there is some real interest from a few teams who absolutely love Drew Locke, which should not be a surprise, because as, we, as we've spoken about before, I was told last year if Drew Locke in the 2018 draft, he would have been right there in the mix with those top four quarterbacks. He would have gone very early. There are people who absolutely love his physical skills, and they love his upside. And they think it's just a bit of, of, about coaching and development. Chris Lindstrom, I'm also hearing about it. Number one, Chris Lindstrom was a terrific player at Boston College. He tested off the charts at the Combine much better than anybody expected. And he would look great at, 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 during position drills at Pro Day. What they're wondering about uh, Chris Lindstrom is, can he play tackle in the NFL at six feet, three and a half inches? Because he was a very good tackle early in his Boston College career. You, know, you usually want your tackles to be six four and a half, six five taller. But we saw last year with the Green Bay, with the New England Patriots, when they took Isaiah Wynn at the end of round one to yep. be their left tackle of the future. Granted, Wynn didn't play last year because of uh, the injuries that, that he suffered. But still, you know, I, I mean, teams think that maybe Lindstrom, with the athleticism that he showed, can play tackle, can be used in more of a zone blocking system. He's got more versatility to his game than he showed on film. In that same article, Tony, uh, Albert Breer pointed out that Rashawn Gary, the defensive lineman from Michigan, may go lower than some people think. And so I wanted to ask you about this as well. Obviously, a big name coming into the year, a huge name in this draft, a former five-star recruit coming out of North Jersey. When you look at Rashawn Gary at this point in the process, what are people saying in terms of where he could go? What is his range? How far could he fall? Could he be available for the Eagles at 25? The answer to the last question is, Unlikely. I mean, the only way uh, he's available at 25 is, is if a major red flag uh, pops up on him. <clears throat> and as we've talked privately uh, off the podcast, I've done you know a bit of inspection into this, a bit of research, and there really are no red flags on him. Uh, there is a question about the production or lack thereof, which is a concern to people. But the fact is this. He is a big athletic guy who can rush the passer. How far can he fall? <clears throat> you know, Miami at 13 needs a pass rusher. Charles Harris has been a com- complete bust from the get-go, and I knew he would be. They lost out on Trey Flowers in free agency, which is a player that they wanted. They still need a defensive end. They still need a guy who can rush the passer. Maybe Atlanta at uh, pick number 14, although I think they want more of a defensive tackle. He'd be a great fit at Carolina with the 16th selection, and they need a pass rusher. So I, I don't think he gets out. Of- I don't think he gets past Carolina at 16. All right, so let's stay on the defensive line. And actually a player that uh, has been mocked to Carolina in some mock drafts. Uh, last week we talked about Dexter Lawrence. So you, you called him the fastest rising defensive lineman in this draft. But I want to ask you about his teammate. That's Cleland Farrell, the defensive end. Uh, I know it was a guy that you're a big fan of. What are, you, what are you hearing right now in terms of his range? How early could he go? How late could he go? What are we talking about right now uh, in terms of where Cleland Farrell could fall? I don't think he's going to go to the Buffalo Bills at 9, although I grade him as a top-12 selection. I think he could go to Carolina at 16. I think the absolute latest he goes is Tennessee to 19 because they need a pass rusher. The thing with Cleveland Farrell is he's not run the 40 for scouts. And, you know, sometimes that's not a big deal, but scouts still want a time, on, an, especially on an underclassman. He hurt his, uh, I believe, his toe uh, leading into pro day. He hasn't been able to run, hasn't been able to prepare. The fact is there's just not, just not enough time for him to run because he's been on so many visits the past two weeks. 
The fact is that you go back to the film, not just in 2017, but in uh, 2018, but you've got to look at the 2016 and 2017 film, where Cleveland Farrell was a constant nuisance, constant nuisance, constantly getting pressure up the field. A guy who's a terrific pass rusher who also looks like a real good athlete on film with the, his ability to make plays in space. You can use him out of a three-point stance. You can use him standing over tackle. <clears throat> Watch the national championship game when he exploited Jonah Williams, who's going to be a top 12, top uh, 14 selection numerous times uh, during that game. He's just a terrific playmaker. <coughs> Excuse me. In my opinion, he's this year's version of Deron Payne. I've said that many, many times. So what do I mean by that? Last year, I graded Deron Payne as one of the top six players in the draft. And people thought I was crazy because they started, they started manufacturing uh, problems with Deron Payne's game that wasn't there. He's a two-down player. He, you know, he's a guy who can't rush the passer. Well, he went in the middle of round one. He turned out to be a terrific player for the Washington Redskins. I see a similar pattern this year. With Cleveland Farrell, people are manufacturing holes in his game, but it just doesn't jive with what you see on film. So he's going to be drafted much later than I would expect him, where I have him graded on my board. I, again, I think he's a terrific fit for Carolina at 16. I think he's going to be an outstanding player on Sunday. Yeah, you and I were on the uh, the same boat with Deron Payne a year ago. Uh, one more big question before we get to mock draft roundup. I want to ask you about uh, one of the most polarizing players, in my opinion, in this draft, and that's Iowa State's Hakeem Butler, the oversized wide receivers, gained a lot of headlines uh, over the course of this process, obviously working out with Megatron, Calvin Johnson in this pre-draft process. Uh, when you look at uh, at Butler, a lot of wide-ranging opinions on him. Some people are very, very high on him in the media. Some people not so much. And then I want to know, what are you hearing about how teams feel about him? Where do you think is kind of the range of where his name will be called? Right now you're looking at a late second, maybe early third-round okay. choice. You know, everybody in the media loves to watch these highlight reel type of films because Hakeem Butler was able to exploit the opponents on the college field. He was so much bigger. He was so much more physical. <clears throat> played in the Big 12. And, you know, he was making these incredible uh, acrobatic receptions. But when you talk to scouts, when you talk to teams, and when you watch the film, he's a terrible route runner. He's got very inconsistent hands. He wins out physically, which only goes so far at the next level. As we've talked about multiple times, he's got to find ways to separate. And separating does not mean you just jump higher than the defender and you come away with the ball because that's not always going to work on Sunday. His route running needs a lot of improvement. His hands need more consistency. You know, again, look what happened with Alan Lazard last year. Everyone thought he was going to be a third or fourth round choice. He fell out of the draft because teams didn't know what to do with him. I think teams like Hakeem Butler at receiver. Obviously, he ran a lot faster than uh, Alan Lazard a year ago. But I still know that there's that concern that, you know what, let's go talk about like D.K. Metcalf. He's got to prove that he's more than just a real big, fast, physical guy who can physically beat down opponents to come away with the reception. It seems like, uh, by the way, the shine is kind of wearing off uh, from a national standpoint on D.K. Metcalf. They're, you know, they're around the combine time. It's, oh, he's going to be a top 15 pick. Now it seems like not, not as many uh, media reports saying he's going to go that high. Well, I never had him that high. I know you didn't, yeah. You, 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 yes, I agree. Yep. As we talk here, you know, D.K. Metcalf, he's, he's, a great, he's a great athlete. He's just not a good receiver. So, and again, with D.K. Metcalf, go back to what I said about Drew Locke. You know, the guy's got great upside, but he's got a big bust factor. I mean, he really needs to learn to be a receiver and, and do more than, uh, than just outrun opponents and, and jump higher than, uh, than defenders to get the ball. And, and Really, with Metcalf, it's even more because when you watch Metcalf, he just doesn't show great awareness on the field. He's running out of bounds on, on, on plays. He, he's uh, on routes. Uh, he hasn't, doesn't have a big body of work. <clears throat> he benefited from a Mississippi offense that had really three good receivers 
as well as uh, a product uh, or an athletic tight end. So it kind of freed him up for uh, a bunch of things. And then there was a neck issue that put him on the sideline. So it shouldn't, doesn't surprise me at all. All right, well, let's stick to the uh, wide receiver position. Final question, mock draft roundup. This guy's been popular in pick uh, with a lot of media types in terms of uh, slotting him to the Eagles now at 25. That's Marquise Brown, the wide receiver from Oklahoma. This one uh, coming from Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network uh, in his latest mock draft that dropped earlier this week over on NFL.com. What are your thoughts uh, on Marquise Brown at 25? Is he going to be there? Good value? What what are your thoughts over there on on that selection? I'd be shocked to see if he's there, but I, okay. I could see the Eagles taking this because, you know, as we talked before, you know, the Eagles theme going into the, uh, pre, in, into the pre-draft process through free agency was speed. Speed, speed, speed. They wanted to in, increase the team speed and improve the team speed, and that's what Marquis Brown does. I mean, you line him up in the slot, you line him up as a kick returner, you use him to run reverses. Uh, he is a fast guy. We're not going to get a 40-time on him before the combine, but all you got to do is watch the film. And I am of the firm belief that, you know, Marquis Brown had a big, was big in the fact, it was really factored into why Kyler Murray had such success this year. I mean, because opponents couldn't stay with them step for step down the field, and Kyler Murray could just pull the trigger on the ball, and he knew that Marquis Brown was going to beat defenders down the field. So, you know, I think it's a good fit because the Eagles want to increase the team speed, and bringing Marquis Brown into the mix, into the franchise, does that from day one. Well, great stuff, Tony. We're, we're going to catch up with you one more time next week before the draft, and that'll be our, our mega yearly meeting with you where we kind of go through this whole thing and just kind of go ra- rapid fire uh, with some of the hot topics in the draft. We'll look forward to that discussion next week. Until next time, again, you could follow Tony on Twitter, at Tony Pauline. Next up, we've got pick six. Ben Fennell and I going through six players that have grown on us most throughout the course of this process. Here's that segment with Ben now. Now it's time for pick six. Really happy to welcome back to the show Ben Fennell. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Fennell underscore NFL. Ben obviously joined us each and every week here on the Journey to the Draft podcast back in the fall, breaking down a number of players in our Saturday scouting segment. You can go back. A lot of that stuff's evergreen. You can go back and check some of those older episodes out to get some of Ben thoughts, Ben's thoughts on some of these players. But, uh, Ben, welcome back to the show, man. Different segment for you, different idea here. This is something C-Mac and I usually do each and every week. You know the drill. We're going to pick six players to cover. And I thought the topic this week could be six players that have grown on us. You and I watch these players throughout the course of their career, throughout the course of the fall, and then obviously through this entire pre-draft process after the season. So I want to get your sense. Give me one guy at the very top. Who's a guy that has really grown on you? We'll say the starting date maybe from the start of the 2018 season up to this point as we sit here now a week out from the NFL draft. You know, one guy that's, you know, the first name off the top of my head, and it comes from this kind of polarizing cornerback class where there isn't really a clear-cut favorite and there's a lot of guys that have good tape and they didn't test well, and then there's guys that tested well that didn't have the good tape, and there's team-fit guys like Byron Murphy and Juwan Williams. But the more I watch David Long from the University of Michigan, this is a Petri dish, Petri dish press corner. This guy has tons of experience playing press man up, the, up there at the University of Michigan with Don Brown. He goes to the combine, he runs 4-4-5, tests in the 90th percentile and three-cone and the short shuttle and the vertical. And you just put on the tape, and you just see this is a guy that has the recovery speed. He's patient at the line of scrimmage. He could stay latched on the receivers late in the downs, which I think is a huge trait in this kind of new age of the NFL with improvisational quarterbacks and late in the down type of plays. You have to really stay on those receivers. His main issue is he's just a little small. He's undersized. He gets swatted away at the line of scrimmage at times. 
a little bit underwhelming in run support. But the more you watch his tape, you put on his 2017 tape, he was one of the few corners that had no problem handling wide receiver D.J. Moore at the University of Maryland, who was a first-round pick last year. And, you know, I really think he's kind of in a Carlos Rogers type of mold and that he's a little bit undersized. But I just think he has all this technique and the traits you want out of a press corner in today's NFL. Yeah, I'm going to go with my pick. My number one guy will be Cleveland Farrell, the defensive end from Clemson. This is a guy I've been watching since his true or his redshirt freshman year, his first year on the field for the Tigers. And you know, there was always rumors oh, he could come out next year. So I've been watching him now for the last three seasons, and the guy has gotten markedly better each and every year. I remember watching him early and thinking, man, the kid, he's got a quick first step. He can get off the ball but he's really raw as a pass rusher. And now you watch him, and he has got such a deep toolbox of tools. I know that's a big thing that you're really excited about with Cleveland Farrell. He can defend the run. He uses his length very well. He's a high-motor kid. He can drop back in coverage as well and do some things for you in that respect. But really watching Cleveland Farrell, to me, you look at like you know Nick Bosa. After that, in terms of being a technician off the edge in this class, I don't know that there is a guy that might be better other, other than Bosa than Farrell, and he's a guy that really, really intrigues me from that respect. And, and the more you watch him, the more you know, his skill set just grows on you, and that absolutely was the fact uh, here with Cleveland Flower for me. You know, when I look at different draft classes, I like to compare it to previous draft classes. And, yeah. you know, maybe Farrell doesn't have that upside and that sexy elite first step of a Harold Landry last year. But I compare him much closer to a Bradley Chubb Mm. that played more downs for the Denver Broncos, ended up having more sacks, and a guy you can play on first and second down and keep on the field, you'll suddenly realize he's going to fill up the stat sheet because he's on the field more often. He's a guy that can play in multiple schemes. He could be a 4-3 defensive end and set the edge for you. I just think he's a really well-rounded football player. All right, so give us uh, your second name here. Who's number two for you on this list? All right, so my second name, we're going to go to the offensive uh, side of the ball with Kansas State Dalton Risner. And this guy is a very interesting player. And when you watch the Kansas State at right tackle, you just thought, man, this guy doesn't look the part. He's got those thick calves, the big ankles, the barrel chest. He says this guy looks like Brandon Scherf. He looks like Cody Whitehair. You're going to play him inside all day. But then you just watch the tape and you watch him more and more. And he had no problems off the edge for the past three years at Kansas State. He's a four-year starter. He started at center as a freshman. Over 50 games started, which you love that experience. He's nasty. He's a mauler. You could watch him against Mississippi State earlier this year against Fontez Sweat. I think Sweat had one decent rep on him. That was kind of a red flag for Risner. But to see him against a premier edge rusher with the length and the first step and the speed of a Montez Sweat, you just realize, man, this guy has no problems off the edge in the Big 12 and a very reliable uh, pass protector. I think he projects best into a guard. But when you're looking at the guard class in this class, could Dalton Risner potentially be the best guard in the class? Yeah, I mean, I, there are certainly some people that believe that. I know you're a big fan of his game. He's a guy that we've talked about over the course of the, uh, the this draft process, and a guy I agree with you. Right when you first watch him, you know he's he's unassuming because of the body type, and you and there's a lot to like there. I mean, you have the toughness, you have the uh, the intelligence, the versatility. Uh, he started every game over the course of his career for the Wildcats. Yeah, there, there is a lot to like there with Dalton Risner. Right. My, uh, my second guy is a player you and I have talked a lot about uh, offline, and this is Ohio State's Terry McLaurin. And, you know, he's got size, he's got speed, uh, the tape is pretty good. And with me, 
I look at him and I'm like, I don't know that there are a lot of players that have helped themselves more since the end of the season than Terry McLaurin, at least from a media side. You know, he went from relative unknown, you know, obviously wasn't super productive at Ohio State in that offense, but goes to the Senior Bowl, shows what kind of character he is, what kind of guy he is all away from the field, and everybody loved him uh, from a media side, but uh, has just been raved about. Everybody that talks about Terry McLaurin raves about, you know, he's going to be a great special teams player. He's a great athlete, tested at a very high level at the combine. You know, he ran the, the 4 3 uh, looked good across the board uh, in athletic testing. So when you're checking a lot of boxes with this kid, showed the ability to be a quality route runner, was pretty good at the catch point. There's a lot to like there with Terry McLaurin. So as the more boxes you check, the more you think, all right, like, you know, maybe this guy isn't just a, a fourth receiver. Maybe he can do a little bit more for you, and he can be a starting-level receiver. I know that's how you view him as well. Yeah, no, one of the big knocks on McLaurin is his lack of production. There's some people that really believe in the whole market share production and how much you're contributing to your offense. But with McLaurin and this Ohio State offense that's pretty well distributed, I don't really see that as a red flag. I mean, these guys are getting young four- and five-star pass catchers and running backs and even starting to dip into these more uh, higher-rated tight ends that they haven't done in years past. There's a lot of mouths to feed, and you got to keep these receivers happy. And for every Terry McLaurin, there's a Paris Campbell back there and a K.J. Hill and a Benjamin Victor coming out next year, and you have these prolific running backs. So I don't get too scared away when I don't see the production from a receiver from Ohio State. All right, well, let's wrap this up. Who's your, your third and final name? So my third name is going to be uh, quarterback Brett Rippon from Boise State. Now, this guy does not look the part, but if we're talking two or three more inches, I think you were really talking a potential day-two pick in the NFL. I don't know if he's going to get drafted. I think he's a camp body, but once he gets in with the team, I think he's really going to ruffle the back end of a quarterback room and really make a case to make a roster. He's a four-star player, highly touted recruit out of the state of Washington, a four-year starter immediately as he got to Boise State. He's an ascending player. He kept improving through those four years, ended with a career high in yards, touchdowns, rating, completion percentage. He's a three-time all-conference. But it's the style of play. He plays a very pro-style system, taking a lot of plays from under center, turning his back to the defense and play action, a lot of bootlegs, having to get onto the edge of the defense, making throws on the run. He'll hang in the pocket. He'll take big hits, make the full-field reads with anticipatory throwing. And that's kind of the knock on him. He doesn't have a strong arm, but I think because of that, he has to anticipate and get that ball out faster. And sometimes his best plays that I have tagged are him going through his checkdowns and getting through those progressions very quickly, getting to those outlets immediately, giving them a chance to get up the field for yards after catch. And I look at the comps, and, you know, it's easy to go with a, a Colt McCoy or Cody Kessler or Kellen Moore or Matt McGloin. These guys are all hung around in the NFL for several years. They just had the size limitations, and I see a similar type of career arc with Brett Rippon, you know, only coming at 6'1", 210. Yeah, and Rippon was a guy who went down to the East-West Shrine game. I'm going to go with a guy that was down at the Senior Bowl, and that's Chris Lindstrom, the offensive lineman from Boston College. I say offensive lineman because he did go back and forth between tackle and guard throughout the course of his career with the Eagles. Some teams, there were reports that they had asked him to take snaps at center as well, so he has showed off that position versatility over the course of his career, and this is a guy... Again, checks a lot of boxes. I mean, he's really athletic. He had a great combine workout, um, but that athleticism does show up on film very much under control of all of his movements. He's very balanced. He's very rarely on the ground. He's technically sound. There's a lot to like there with Chris Lindstrom, and the more you watch and the more you see, you know what? This guy's going to be a starting NFL lineman. This guy's a professional player. So, uh, Ben, 
Great segment, sir. Really, uh, really excited to have you back on. Something tells me we'll be uh, hearing more from you here, uh, maybe soon after the draft, but we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Ben, appreciate the time here as always. We'll talk to you next time here on Pick 6 and the Journey to the Draft. Now, we're going to get over to Mr. Relevant, Lance Zerline from NFL Network and NFL.com will be joining us. Here's that segment now. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Really happy to be joined by Lance Zerline from NFL Network, NFL.com. Lance, uh, it's been a while. It's been about a year since you've been on the Journey to the Draft podcast. It seems like every year you've always got a ton of juice. I know you were the one that kind of broke before it broke that the Eagles were going to trade up for Carson Wentz back in 2016. That was a great episode, something I always look back on uh, as one of the highlights of this podcast. But great to have you on. I want to kind of take this conversation into a a really direct route and really want to highlight what the five teams picking ahead of the Eagles, what their thought process is going into next week. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, for those who don't know, Lance is is an outstanding evaluator, obviously, and really a strong background in offensive line play. His dad was an outstanding offensive line coach in the NFL for a long, long time. So I want to ask you, outside of the, the top names, those locks in the first round, you know, say Juwan Taylor, Jonah Williams, Andre Dillard, outside of that group, Who's the, the one name that you really would stand up on the table for, you would pound the table for and say, this is my guy in this draft? Is there one offensive lineman that you really feel strongly connected to from this group? Well, I think a couple. One is Dalton Reisner from Kansas okay. State. Um, and the other is Eric McCoy from Texas A&M. <clears throat> I think Eric McCoy deserves to be mentioned um, amongst the top interior players in this draft without question. He is, I mean, he put it on tape against Raekwon Davis and Quentin Williams from Alabama, uh, Dexter Lawrence and Christian Wilkins from Clemson. That, that is a combination of size, of quickness, of power, of, of length, depending on which prospects you, you, know, you take a look at. That's, you're quite possibly looking at, you probably are looking at four first-rounders that I just mentioned to you. Yeah. And he's got good tape against all of them. So, and, you know, I don't know what else you want. He's got he plays with he plays with um, adequate balance. He plays with good strength. He's got good core strength. He he tests he tested well from a movement standpoint. He can move. He can play guard or center. So he's got position flexibility. I just think Eric McCoy is almost a can't miss solid starter for years to come in the NFL. Potential to be a good a plus starter. Um, I, I think he's going to be a plus starter. And then Dalton Reisner, you know, we can go back and forth about whether or not he can play tackle or not. I know he got guys blocked in, on the tape at right tackle. There are some teams that think he's a little stiff. I, I just go by it, he's not a guy that panics in his past sets. So I think he potentially can stay at right tackle. And if he doesn't, he's got experience snapping at center. And then he also um, you know, figures to, to slide inside the guard for a team who, who needs guard. So – I think he has potentially four-position value, left guard, center, right guard, right tackle. And then he's got very strong – he's got great core strength. Once again, he plays under control, and he's got very strong hands. And those are some of the the three key factors. I want body control, core strength, and strong hands. uh, I think that's something that you have to have for an interior player, and it certainly helps out a tackle too. It's something that I remember Isaiah Wynn had last year. Although I would say he was more, you know, quick-footed than Dalton Reisman, and, and he's a nasty guy too. He's got the disposition. So those are the two guys that that I, I'd be willing to stand on the table for because I think they're both going to be, you know, good pros. 
I'm glad you brought up McCoy. I feel like we don't talk about him enough on, on this podcast. I, I, I wrote about him. I watched two games going down to the Senior Bowl. He was a late addition, obviously a junior who under, who declared for the draft late, uh, and then since he graduated was eligible to go to Mobile. I watched a couple of games, and I think it was those two games. I think it was Alabama-Clemson. I just wanted to get a sense, all right, let's see him against the best competition. He stood out really well. He wasn't getting much buzz at that point. I, I compared him in our, in our preview piece to Ryan Kelly, and I, I thought I raised some eyebrows. Was yeah. all, you know, and that, that was kind of a guy I could see him being that kind of player. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. You know, I, people look at the three, the three centers from this draft, Jenkins, uh, Bradbury, and, and McCoy, and Bradbury is going to be the shorter-armed, outstanding athlete who just has a ton of solid tape, but he does benefit from playing in a, an inside-outside zone scheme. So, I mean, he's been doing the same thing for years and years, and he's got it down, and he plays well. Uh, Jenkins is bigger, he's longer, he's stronger, and he is going to be more of the power player. He's a little bit limited in space when you ask him to do some you know, short area stuff on combo blocks and things like that. So you have the really athletic guy in Bradbury, you have the power guy with the physical traits you like at center, and then McCoy to me slides right in between where he can he can handle uh, he can handle power he can handle quickness he can get out in space uh, he's got good size and, and, and girth at the center position so I think McCoy's the nice blend of what you like about Jenkins and what you like about Bradbury and I would argue that you know he's he's going to be right up there with with one of the safer prospects in this draft. All right, well, let's get into the meat of this discussion. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, Lance, and that's really getting a sense of where the five teams picking ahead of the Eagles, where their heads are at at this point now that we're about a week away from the 2019 draft. Let's start with the 20th overall pick. That's the Pittsburgh Steelers. It seems like their perfect world would be linebacker Devin Bush from Michigan. All reports seem to indicate that, that won't be a, a, a choice for them. He will, he will be off the board by that point. But do you think that's possible? And if not, if Bush is gone like we most of us expect – who do you think is kind of on the board here for the Steelers? Where do you think their mind's at at this point? Well, I think cornerback is where they're going to be looking. And, you know, finding the right cornerback is going to be key for for the Steelers. I, you know, linebacker would make some sense, but if both the Devons are gone, which everyone expects, then I'd, I'd say, yeah, I, I don't think linebacker is going to be the play there. So the next place you turn is cornerback. And so I, I think Lonnie Johnson, Byron uh, these are a couple of guys that, that I think could potentially rock you. Those are the three guys that I think kind of fit the Pittsburgh mold in one way or another. So I think cornerback uh, um, is, is a position you could potentially look at there. I think there's an outside chance of wide receiver. I just yeah. don't know that we would see Kevin Colbert value wide receiver in the first. All right, well, let's get get to the next one. I think this is going to be really interesting. And the Seattle Seahawks picking at 21 – you know, this was a spot I think uh, Peter King wrote not this week but last week that this was the team most likely to trade out of this spot. And I think when you look at the Seahawks, it makes sense. They don't have a ton of draft picks this year. They'd like to try and acquire more capital, especially after paying uh, Russell Wilson this week. Is this the landing spot, though, for a guy like Rashawn Gary? We know about Pete Carroll and where he kind of tends to go with uh, with these prospects. It seems like he kind of trends towards players who are former big-time recruits. He's got some of that position versatility there along the defensive line. Do you think that he, he would make sense for Seattle? If not, who is a player that makes sense there for the Seahawks? Well, I, I just I just think Gary's going to be good. I can't envision him. I can't just can't envision him lasting that long, not with those trades. Yep. Um, but I do think I do think you're on to the position. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle Frank Clark and what they end up doing yeah. with Frank Clark. That's going to that's going to really spotlight what they need to do. 
Um, they're a team that for a long time kept looking to to fix the offensive line. I, I, think, I think there's still some work to be done there on the offensive line. That's a position you could look at. Most people are looking DN, though. So Cleveland Farrell's not as explosive as they typically like. I do think Brian Burns is the guy that if he were still there, they would be all over him. Uh, Farrell... You know, Farrell fits in some ways, and he does have the strength, and the, he's got some power, and he's got some aggressiveness, high football character, good motor. He just doesn't have that explosive get-off off the line of scrimmage. So I think that's that's what, you know, that's one of the things that he liked about Frank Clark, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that really fits the Seattle mode right there. I do think that they will try to trade out. Yeah. More than likely, with giving Russell Wilson all that money, I think they would love to get out of the first round and out of that level of guaranteed money and get a little bit cheaper because they've got to fill in with cheaper pieces around Russell uh, Wilson, not just now but for the foreseeable future. So that is going to be something that plays into it. So they could look to get out of there. But, you know, for me, I think back end, secondary, um, uh, defensive end and offensive line are the, the areas that you could potentially look there. And I, they're always a wild card for a running back. They just are never satisfied with any of their running backs since they lost Lynch. So I would say they would be a wild card off the grid name to be attached to Josh Jacobs. But I, I, I think that would be kind of a long shot. I one thing I actually said this to somebody like about a week or two ago. I, that he would be like that, or the the, C, the Seahawks would be like the off the radar team for Josh Jacobs. I just feel like he's the kind of mentality that Pete Carroll likes. He likes yeah. those big physical bruisers. The the backstory, everything about uh, Josh Jacobs kind of speaks to that. I mean, he's got some of the same things you have with Lynch. Yeah, where you got the physicality, the toughness. Uh, he can catch it out of the backfield. You know, would they want to do that with a running back? I don't know, but I do think that that he would upgrade the running game. I mean, Carson's fine, but Jacobs is better. All right, so let's get to the next pick here. 22, Baltimore Ravens on the clock. A lot of things being tied to them with wide receiver, potentially some speed. You know, I know Tony Paulina's mentioned uh, DK Metcalf, you know, Paris Campbell, Marquise Brown, any of those three guys. Is that kind of where you see them going, or do you think they might go front seven with some of the losses they've had in free agency this offseason? I think front seven is the direction they could go, but wide receiver makes a ton of sense. The problem is after the Perryman failure, I don't yeah. know that they want to go another height, weight, speed, upside guy yeah. if DK Metcalf were to fall to them. That that would have to be tough to pull the trigger. Now, now look, I, I think the tape is better um, for DK in the, in the SEC. He's got great football character. He's got a great bloodline. I mean, there's a lot of positives for DK Metcalf, and I think he's got a chance to be really good if you use him in the right way. And I think that he makes a lot of sense as a big target who can go vertical, you know, with some kind of easy throws, either hitches or posts or go routes for for Lamar Jackson. That's something you want to consider. With that said, I just don't know if the specter of their miss with Perryman, if that would scare them there. Marquise Brown, really, honestly, is, is more accomplished, obviously. And I think Marquise Brown, it, it might be an easier sell to say, we know what we're getting with Marquise Brown. He doesn't have the same traits. He's got great speed, doesn't have the size. But let's give, you know, let's give Lamar Jackson a guy who we can do some catch-and-run stuff with underneath as well. He can work outside. He can work from a slot. So I think either one of those guys, Metcalf or Brown, could be the selection if they did that. And then defensively, you know, it's really just a matter of what's left and who's left yeah. um, on the board. But but front seven is definitely a need for them. 
Baltimore pour a little salt in the wound uh, with Pittsburgh. Go, you lose Antonio Brown. Now we're going to come back and hurt you with his cousin. Uh, would be some uh, poetic justice there for the Ravens. All right, uh, let's get to ne- next one. Twenty-three Houston Texans. Obviously, a team you're very familiar with, being based uh, down there in Houston. Is it an offensive line, offensive line, offensive line? Is there any other conceivable uh, option here for the Texans, or do you think it's definitely going to be in the trenches? Oh no, I, I, I think it's two positions. I think it's okay. O line or or cornerback. Okay. <laughs> Their cornerback situation is a mess. They've got, you know, they spent money on Aaron Colvin. He was a mess last year. They got Bradley uh, Roby on a one-year deal. Jonathan Joseph is way too old. They're just hanging on with him as a Band-Aid. Uh, uh, they they are really in some trouble at cornerback. And, and a lot of the moves they made, they signed two free agents to one-year deals off, you know, in the off season. And then Jonathan Joseph might as well be a one-year deal. So you really. I think you'll see the Texans take at least two cornerbacks in this draft, and probably two cornerbacks within their within their first uh, four selections of this draft. So I think cornerback is in play there also, okay. but tackle is tackle is there's no two desperate needs. You never want to be in this position. Yeah. You never want to be desperate at tackle and and at cornerback, two priority positions. And I mean they're desperate. They are desperate, so they're going to have to potentially reach at those positions because they must address them this year. Is there a, a type for Romeo Cornell uh, at, at corner? Like, is there a specific uh, play personality or body type or anything that you say, like, all right, this would definitely boost this kind of player up versus uh, this kind of prospect? Or do you think it's, like you said, it's, it's kind of desperation mode, we'll take whoever the best kind of player is? They want highway speed. Okay. Brian Gain is, forget Romeo Cornell, this is Brian Gain saying, we are going to make this team bigger, faster, stronger. And so they're going to go height, weight, speed um, across the board. It's what they did last year. That's what they will do this year. A guy like Rocky Sin, who has tremendous toughness and football character, he runs pretty well. He's got good size. He's very strong. I could see him being in the mix there. Lonnie Johnson, <laughs> height, weight, speed. Mm, yeah. You know, that's another guy to consider. I, you know, the tape is not first-round quality, but the traits are. And, um, and, I would say Reedy Williams would have to be in play there. You'd have to check on the football character, but that's another height, weight, speed prospect. They've got to find guys who can cover T.Y. Hilton. Yeah. I mean, T.Y. Hilton just rips them apart every game forever, and they can't afford not to get better speed on that team. So I think they will have minimums that you have to reach speed-wise to be considered in the first three rounds. All right, well, let's get to the last pick here before the Eagles are on the clock, and that's 24th overall, Oakland Raiders. Where where do you think Mike Mayock and John Gruden are looking at this point? Uh, obviously, three first-round picks, so a lot of options, a lot of different ways that they can go in this draft. Well, I think there's, there's, there's three primary positions, one secondary, and one wild card. The wild card right. is quarterback. Yep. I, I just I don't know what they do about quarterback because with three first-round picks, I think there is a potential that they could look – at Haskins, Jones, or Locke, if any of those three fell to 24-27. <laughs> as far as the, the, the secondary position, I would say that's wide receiver. That could be a position that they look at. My guess is they do it outside of the first, but I could see them potentially looking at a wide receiver with either 24 or 27. Okay. I think the positions they'd like to add are guard, defensive tackle, defensive end, and really I should say linebacker too. So really up the middle – with D-tackle, linebacker, and, of course, Dan, they've got to get pass rush, and they've got to get better up the middle. So defensive front is, I would guess, going to be at least two of the picks 
of, of their first-round picks are going to be defensive front picks, whether it's Devin White, a linebacker, uh, whether it's uh, Montez Sweat at number four, whether it's you know a guy like Cleveland Farrell with one of the backside picks, uh, J- Jeffrey Simmons at number 24 or number 27. I think they're going to draft in the fronts and then potentially offensive guard is another position that I know they'd like to get better at. But this isn't a bad guard draft, so you could find a starter potentially in the second round. Let me ask you about one player, and then I'll let you go. Uh, it, feel, it feels like to me with Oakland that you know you look at the running back position, uh, you know what they've got there in the room already, and we know John Gruden's M.O. in terms of what he likes that spot. This is another thing. I, I kind of feel like Josh Jacobs, this could be a, a sweet spot for him. Do you think that that connection could be uh, something to keep an eye on? I would say, yeah, I would say so because to me, if you want to say, well, we don't value the running backs, it makes it a lot easier to take a running back when you have three first right. rounders yep. because then you can say, we got what we needed. Let's go give, let's go give our, our quarterback more help by getting a, a running back who can play on three downs, who can affect three downs. Here's the problem, and I've heard this from now multiple NFL people who said Josh Jacobs didn't go on first, and I say, well, why not? He didn't have to tread off the tires. He didn't send that production. Mm. He didn't run for 700 yards. How are you going to draft a guy who's not a starter, who's never run for 700 yards in the season, uh, and who ran a 4.640? And their point is, historically, that never, ever, ever happens. And this would have to break all the molds. And I know it's easy for us to just, we on the outside, when we're looking at drafts and we say, this player in a vacuum is this good. This player in a vacuum is this good. But NFL teams look to history. They look to data. Wait, you know, we... We like to act like we're way more in tune and advanced with the analytics, this, that, and the other. NFL teams look at historical data and historical trends more than anybody, and they go find what is successful and what is not successful, and they use that to, to bolster you know, their draft priorities. And, and I think when you look at the data, the data says you don't take Josh Jacobs in the first round. From a value standpoint, from, a, from, from the standpoint of which markers he fails to hit, and so NFL teams who really value data and value historical trends and norms, they say Josh Jacobs, there's no way he goes in the first. So I think it's going to be interesting to see where he does end up. You can follow him on Twitter just like I do, at Lance Zerline. Obviously all of his reports over at NFL.com, all the content that they're churning out over there. Lance, one of the best in the business. Appreciate the time here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Next, we're going to transition to my interview with Chuma Adoga, the left tackle or the right tackle from USC. Caught up with him down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. He is this week's unofficial visit. The unofficial visit. Here now with USC offensive lineman Chuma Adoga. And Chuma, for fans who have yet to watch you play, give us a quick scouting report of what you'll bring to the NFL. Uh, just a lot of athleticism, a lot of aggressiveness, just trying to give 110% every play, a lot of effort. Now, did you play offensive line ever since you were a little kid, or did you kind of make that transition throughout the rest of your career? Oh, yeah, since I started, I've been an offensive lineman. So, yeah, it's just been a part of me. Uh, has it always been left tackle, or have you always kind of taken pride in playing both tackle spots? Uh, no, nah, I've pretty much been right tackle my whole career. This is my first time really trying out left tackle. So, you know, it was a fun experience, a lot of learning, a lot of uh, ups and downs, but I had a fun time. Yeah, was it about what you expect? I mean, did you know going into it that it would be left tackle, yeah. or did you really just find out when you kind of got, uh, got here in Mobile? Yeah, I really just found out when I got here. I've been practicing a lot of right, but, you know, I was still practicing left a little bit down there at Prime Athlete Development. But, uh yeah, just coming out here, Tom Cable, he wanted me to try out left, so that's why I've been playing. All right, so give us uh, the feedback that you've gotten from scouts so far. What's one area where they really want to kind of see you prove yourself over the next couple of months? 
Uh, just making sure I'm always locked in, uh, giving 110% effort every play, never taking plays off, just being me. And who are some offensive linemen that you've watched in the NFL that you know you really kind of enjoy watching and enjoy studying? Uh, I love watching Trent Williams, Silverback. He's one of my favorite players. You know, he's real athletic, real aggressive, and just a real mammoth of a man. So I love watching him. I love watching Jason Peters. He's like the same, real athletic, aggressive, and uh, of course. Uh, Tyron Smith, USC uh, graduate, love watching him too. So very familiar with the uh, with the NFC East, obviously, with yeah. uh, some of these guys. But uh, one one last question for you: Who's one player, offense or defense, that's really stood out to you so far here this week? Uh, really, LJ Collier, dude from TCU. He's a real fast guy, but he still got a lot of strength to him. Real aggressive. I just love his mindset. He's always bringing it 110. Uh, percent Just a dog, really. Well, Chuma, best of luck the rest of this week and then the next couple of months as well. All right, appreciate it. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. So that was my interview with Chuma Adoga, obviously a very talented player who really stood out down there in Mobile with his ability in pass protection. Did a great job in one-on-one drills throughout the course of the week there in Mobile. So good catching up with him. Now, we're going to get over the draft mailbag. Obviously, it's just myself here today, but I will answer some of your questions. We're going to go first to our Apple podcast page where write him comments saying, Hey, friend, I noticed in your evaluation of LSU cornerback Greedy Williams, I'm assuming that's referring to our Meet the Prospect series, which you can always check out over on PhiladelphiaEagles.com or on the Eagles YouTube page. Go check out all of those pieces are all there on the Eagles YouTube page. You can go see them there. But uh, referring to the the breakdown on Greedy Williams, that you saw him having trouble turning to locate the football while in phase with the receiver. I was thinking, isn't that similar uh, to an issue that Jalen Ramsey had coming out of college? Also, does Greedy possess any similar traits to Jalen Ramsey? And Yeah, I think if you really, really like Greedy Williams – that's kind of how you envision him going. I mean, that's the upside, right, And that he's got that length, he's got the movement, his straight-line speed is really impressive, his ability to dominate early in the down. There are flashes of that with Greedy Williams. He's just not as consistent. You guys might remember, I was a huge, huge fan of Jalen Ramsey coming out of Florida State. The question with him was his usage. He was used all over the formation. He was a safety. He was a corner. Kind of moved all around the, the field there for the Seminoles. So that was a big question there with, uh, with Ramsey. With Greedy, that one of the things you want to see him defend the run a little bit better and then just turning and finding the ball. There are flashes of it, but just doing it on a more consistent basis. So great question there from Wilt there on our Apple podcast page. And again, that's our last question in the queue. So if you want to get onto the show, go on. And really, it's the best way to support the show. Go on. Give us that five-star rating. You do it on Stitcher as well. Give us the five-star rating and leave us a comment. And it just helps boost us up the rankings, allows more people to find the show and listen to it and take it in every single week. So appreciate the comment there. Now, let's get to some Twitter questions. First up, at Racy986 asks, Fran, this question isn't draft-related per se, but it is relative to safety in the NFL. Why are teams limited to dressing only 46 versus all 53 on a given game week? And race, Ray, the, the reason the, my understanding of the rules is this. It's in place so that, you know, obviously, look, injuries are a part of the NFL, right? They're a part of the, a part of the game. Every team is going to go into a given week with a handful of guys injured. So really what that does is it prevents one team, let's say you've got 53 men on your roster, that maybe they only have two guys that are injured, and another team has seven or eight, and they have to deactivate players. Now you're not going into a game really at a huge disadvantage. It just helps the numbers game out from that standpoint. So that's really the nature of that rule is to just make it so that there's no huge disadvantage for a team that, you know, hey, they got dinged up this year or this week. 
Now they they may be down six or seven guys compared to this other team, and it also helps job security because if you were in that scenario where you know there's it's a 53 man roster on game day, hey, this guy's hurt, he might only be out for a couple weeks. It's a little bit easier to swallow if you can say, all right, well, we can just activate this guy. He's going to be up, and this player that's going to be out for a couple weeks will be down. Now, if you're a fringe roster player and you get hurt for a couple of weeks and that's a roster spot that somebody will be able to take on game day, now you may see that guy lose his job. So I think from both sides of the coin, both the NFL and the NFLPA, that's why that rule is in place the way it is. And to me, it does make a lot of sense. If you want to talk about increasing roster size, you know, you go from 53 to 60 or something like that, then you're getting into a different discussion. But I think that's why you see 46 dressing as opposed to the full 53. All right. Uh, next question, at Matthew Elam 78 how do you feel about Dalton Reisner? If the spot is right, is he a fit for the Eagles? He was a player that we talked about earlier with Ben, and, and I'll kind of echo that sentiment. I think when you look at Dalton Reisner, yeah, like right when you watch him, you're like, man, this guy, he doesn't like look like a tackle. He looks like a guard, and he, might, he may be a guard. He may be a center at the next level, but there's a lot to like there with him. He's a pretty technically sound kid. He's really, really tough. His uh, physicality, his meanness, his nastiness at the point of attack, that is evident when you watch him on film. I mentioned the versatility. He's played both center and tackle uh, for the Wildcats, so this is a guy that can play multiple positions. That is certainly valuable throughout the course of the NFL, and I think really when you look at Reisner, he checks a lot of boxes. He's very smart. He's Never missed a game. He's extremely durable. He's high character. Uh, was one of the guys that stole the show uh, both at his combine or at the combine and at the Senior Bowl during the media sessions. You know, all the reporters all love him. Yeah, everybody gravitates towards a guy like Dalton Reisner. So when you look at him, he can, again checks a lot of boxes, and that's going to help him uh, when he gets to, to draft week next week. All right, one more, a couple more here. Doctor Johnny O asks. Many seem to think that Benny Snell, the running back from Kentucky, is not athletic enough to succeed at a high level in the NFL. Do evaluators take into account his incredible production in the toughest conference, virtually no passing support, and no NFL lineman in front of him? Hashtag confused. So obviously a huge Benny Snell fan uh, there from Johnny O. All right, so... I think when you look at this, you can almost let's just take a step back because there is a lot to like there with Benny Snell. But I think this kind of leads to a bigger discussion. Really, when you're looking at this, you don't want to necessarily focus just on production. It's not necessarily what a guy did. It's what a guy did in college that helps project what he can do for you in the future. It's just like in the NFL, right? You don't want to pay out a huge contract to a player just because he put up big numbers for you last year. You want to be able to project, okay, what is he going to do for me next year and the year after that and the year after that? So with all of these players, whether they were productive, whether they weren't, whether they tested well at the combine or whether they didn't, whether they graded well from a character standpoint or they didn't, you're trying to evaluate what can this guy do for me in the future? What is he going to be for this team in 2019 and 2020 and beyond? And so when you look at a guy like Snell, all of those things come into play. All of those things become factors. And I'm going to be honest, if you're watching a player and you like him and you come away saying, I really like him, those things that you pointed out, no passing support, no lineman in front of him, toughest conference. Those are the things that when you're writing a report, you're going to make sure they sneak in there because you're trying to validate why you like him, right? But if you don't like him, if you watch Benny Snell and you don't like him, you're going to say, look, uh, you know, I just don't see the traits. I don't see the uh, guy that can see, succeed in the NFL. He doesn't make enough people miss at a high enough rate. You know, you're going to try and pull away some of those negatives. But I'm glad that you're looking at the big picture, but I want you to, again, just take a look at it and say, okay, how is this guy going to project to the NFL? What is he going to do in the future? It's not just what you did in the past, but look into the next couple of years. What can a guy do for you down the road in the NFL? All right, final question here. Friend of the show, at TMAC21, for an edge or an outside linebacker like Kentucky's Josh Allen, we'll stay with the Wildcats here, who rushes less than he drops in coverage, and that's true. He does play a lot in reverse, and he does set the edge often. 
Can you discuss the number of games you need to watch and his limited pass rush moves? I think he has a few moves partially because his speed rush was almost more affected, effective with limited use. And uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that it is very, very true when you look at the way that he was used. He was very, very versatile, and you could kind of see all the different things that he can do for a defense. Yeah, can set the edge. Yeah, he can drop in coverage. Did a lot of different things for Kentucky over the course of his career. This is going back to his junior year as well, and I watched him over the summer. That's what one of the things that really, really allures me to a guy like Josh Allen. But I agree with you. One of the questions I had, especially coming into the year, he wasn't used often as a pass rusher, so the pass rush plan wasn't always there. But he did show the ability to win with that speed move, which is, which is good. You want that, but you need to be able to counter off that. You need to be able to expand off that. I think he showed that a little bit this year, which was good, and he showed it in big moments. You know, Late in games, he's coming up with sacks, sack fumbles, forcing turnovers, big plays that tilted the game towards Kentucky. And those are things that will weigh heavy uh, for evaluators next week. But I think when you look at a guy like Allen, the more you can watch, the better. Uh, and you're always trying to get if you if you project him to be a pass rusher and goes back to the, the Snell conversation. If you project him to be a pass rusher, you want to watch as many clips as you can of him being a pass rusher. If you're watching a tackle and maybe he didn't have a ton of experience at guard, but you know he he played a little bit of guard early in his career. You want to watch all those guard reps. If you're a press team at corner and you see a, guy, a corner that played a lot of off coverage, you're trying to find as many press clips as you can as possible because you're trying to make that projection easier to make. You're trying to see that, what is that. You're trying to make that apples to apples comparison. And I think when you're looking at a guy like Allen, that's absolutely what you're trying to do. So great questions there all around. Really appreciate everybody for joining in here for the uh, the Journey of the Draft podcast. Thanks to Tony Pauline, to Ben Fennel, to Lance Zerline. Great slate of guests as uh, I, ride, I ride solo here. For today's episode, CMAC will be back next week. I think we'll have two episodes next week, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait a little bit. I don't want to give too much away, but two episodes next week before we get into draft night. But really, really exciting. Again, next week for the draft, Eagles Draft Central. You can tune in. Our pre-show is going to be at 7 p.m. on Thursday night. We'll have an hour's worth of coverage. There's going to be access. There's going to be analysis, interviews with Howie Roseman and Joe Douglas. It's going to be a jam-packed show, so make sure you tune into that. 7 p.m. next Thursday night on PhiladelphiaEagles.com, all the social channels the app. Make sure you download the app. There's a lot going on over here at, at the Novacare Complex. But until then, we'll see you next week. C-Mac will be back in this seat. I'll be back over in the left chair uh, as the analyst. But until then, thanks for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast.